What I would like to do for us today is to look at Mark chapter 4, and it's a passage that we are all familiar with. It's the parable of the sower, and we are going to read the full 20 verses, but then I want us to hone in on the third soil, because I find that one to be, in some regards, uniquely um, applicable to many of us Christians, depending on the season of life that we're in. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. So as you turn there, um, some of you know that our family currently lives in Florida. And I didn't know much about Florida before I moved there. I knew a couple things. I I knew that the uh, epic in Miami took place in 1982 when the Chargers beat the Dolphins in overtime, when Kellen Winslow had his arms around the teammates and they had to literally carry him off the field. And uh, commentators would say if there ever was a game that nobody should lose, it was that one. That that one would qualify because of just the nature of how that game played out. The second thing I knew about Florida was that you knew it was the citrus state. You know, it's even on the license plate. You see the oranges on these license plates. And so I knew that much. Um, And what's interesting is that citrus in Florida is no longer the citrus that it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. In fact, what's happened is is that a disease has attacked the citrus crop in Florida to the extent that 75% of it is no longer there. And so 85% of the grapefruits are no longer there. There are certain areas of Florida that don't even grow uh, citrus any longer. And Florida used to be synonymous with orange juice. I mean, I think there's even a brand called Florida's Natural, Tropicana. Tropicana was actually run by Christians, and they would support missions. But yet today, they don't know if if, if Florida is even going to have a citrus uh, sector of their agricultural... um, economy in the next 10 or 15 years. They're trying, they're scrambling to find a solution, but it's not looking good. And as I thought about that, I thought that that's a good analogy for spiritual fruit, for the life of a believer, that you can have seasons in your life where you are fruitful, where you are abundantly producing good fruit. But yet, if we're honest, we can also point to seasons where we begin to see certain bacteria, certain diseases take over our hearts, and our fruitfulness begins to wane. We're not, you know, no more, no more big crops to pick from. Light starts becoming dim, and like John said, you start having to look under the branches to see if, if there's really anything there. And as John said, Once in Christ, always in Christ. But you can go through seasons where you really start to wonder, why is there no fruit here? And what is that disease or what is that virus or what is that thing that is plaguing healthy trees? And so as Christians, uh, John read from John chapter 15, and you could hear Jesus' discourse there about how he specifically talked about the fruitfulness of his disciples and that a healthy Christian 
is invariably going to produce fruit. And that's because the Holy Spirit is working in us. It's not so much that we have mustered up the discipline to pick ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, but that as we surrender and submit and trust and lean on, He will produce the good fruit through us for those around us. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to focus on uh, Mark chapter 4 and the third fruit. And what you're going to see is, is that Jesus is going to be speaking as the realist. If there was an unofficial theological attribute that we could give to Jesus, it should be the realist. In a climate and culture today where we have to sift and really debate and deliberate, if we're getting the straight scoop, you don't have to do that with Jesus. He is going to be the ultimate realist. But then, this passage is buttressed by Jesus the Redeemer. And so as we look at this, keep that in mind, that Jesus is shooting us straight. He's not mincing words. But at the same time, he's giving us the antidote that we might be fruitful Christians. And the fact is, over the course of a marathon of faith, we're going to be fruitful, we're going to be dry and barren, and by God's grace, He's going to carry us through. But He wants us to be fruitful. And so what do we do about it? So let's read together Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again He began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about Him, so that He got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land and he was teaching them many things in parables and in his teaching he said to them listen a sower went out to sow and as he sowed some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches 
and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let's pray one more time. Father God, it's your word, and you are the one who is using it to advance your kingdom, to build your church, and to strengthen your people. And we pray that you would do that now as we spend some time on this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were to assess yourself this morning, how do you think you would identify the level of fruitfulness in your life? If you could assess yourself in the privacy of your own heart, where would you peg yourself this morning? Or if we did one of those 360-degree assessment surveys and others could look at your life at this moment in time, what would they say about the level of fruitfulness in your life? Are we bearing good fruit? Are we being fruitful? Is there an abundance? Is there a crop that is yielding abundant fruit? Or is it dry? And when we speak of fruitfulness, I, there's a handful of ways we can describe it. There's obviously the fruit of the Spirit. A person's constitution is laid out in Galatians. You know, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control that Paul talks about. There is the service to one another, right? Modeled by Jesus who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And then telling his disciples on multiple occasions, imitate me in service to others. Service could include operating within your giftedness. If you're a saint, you have gifts. God has gifted you uniquely and specifically for the building up for the local assembly of believers that you are a part of. He just does that. Whatever that might be, prophecy, teaching, helps, administration. There's evangelism and making disciples. We know how Jesus said, go to all the world, declare the gospel, and lo and behold, I am with you until the end of the age. And then there's godliness, right? Mortifying our sin, fighting the fight of faith, battling to be holy, for God is holy, as Peter tells us in chapter 1 of his first epistle. So how would you grade yourself? Good, bad, ugly, full, sparse, barren, thriving, struggling, stuck, or fighting, succumbing, or knocked down, you know? It's something that we really want to ask ourselves because Jesus will get very real with us, but because Jesus is the Redeemer, he's going to get very tender with us at the same time because that's not where he wants us if we're knocked down. It isn't. It isn't. So he's got a good word for us. And a couple considerations as we get into this parable, kind of overarching ones. This is like the decoder parable. Jesus tells his disciples that if you don't get this parable, 
you, don't, you aren't going to understand the other parables that I share. That there's a particular significance about how Jesus is using this parable to explain his kingdom and explain his teaching ministry. And so he tells his apostles, understand this one and it will help you in understanding my other teachings um, as we go on during his earthly ministry. And if you distill this parable, I would say it boils down to this. If, if you leave with one thing and you want it one nugget, 30 seconds, it's worship. Our fruitlessness and our fruitfulness is contingent on our worship. And the point being, it's not whether we worship, because God made us to worship. It's only a question of what has encaptured and ravaged and snared our heart. Is it the things of Satan, the things of the world, or are we enamored with the things of the Lord? And so what Jesus is going to do is help unpack that, help people see where they're at so that they can get out. And also, parables are really a form of judgment and mercy. It sort of reveals the message of God and it conceals it from those who are perishing. For believers, it gives them more revelation. For unbelievers, it gives them more misunderstanding about who Jesus is and about what the kingdom is about. And in Mark 4.12, Jesus says, They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And Jesus is referring to Isaiah in chapter 6 and the ministry that he had. And what are the elements of this parable? We've got the sower. So that's Jesus, obviously, in the context of this parable. But secondarily, and for the purposes of the church today, I believe that's any faithful minister, any faithful Christian who is declaring the message of the gospel and spreading that to the sphere of influence that they are in. We have the seed, which is the word of God. We have the field, which is the world. And then we have four types of hearts, four types of soils and four types of hearts. And this is only conjecture. Please don't hold me to it. But it almost seems like it's a progression. The, to be in the first soil is the worst soil. To be in the fourth soil is the best soil. Because in the first soil, you have a hard heart. And Jesus says the devil snatches that seed. In God's providence, he allows the devil to grab the seed that is um, poured out. And so for a certain population, they don't have a chance. In his providence, he chooses to do that. In the second soil, you have a shallow heart. The soil's not very deep. It springs up. But persecution comes. Tribulation comes. And the sun scorches it. And it withers away. I, I don't see that particular plant rebounding. But the third soil is sort of the divided heart. And it's a little harder to say definitively what Jesus is saying here. Is it the type of choke where someone has a hold of your neck but is going to let go if the right uh, series of events take place? Or is it the kind of choke that is going to suffocate you and kill you? Because if you think about it, the, the, the plant grows, the thorns choke. So what if you just cut the thorns off? Just eliminate the thorns that are around it. What will happen then? The, the plant can rebound and take its course that it's intended to do by the hand of God. 
And so today, this morning, we are in the third soil. And one commentator considers the third soil discipleship which survives but is unproductive. Another uh, commentator considers it discipleship that's stuck between two kingdoms. You're not like completely in the world, but you're not like completely in the heaven. It's like this tussle. It's like this fight. It's like this struggle. It's like this tug of war where you're, one moment you're being pulled to the world, another moment you feel the Lord drawing you to himself and empowering you, and you're fighting. And really, regardless of what type of a soil that is, let's say it is the type of choke that kills you, or let's say it is the type of choke that just hinders you, the response is the same. <laughs> Repent and believe, or repent and just turn around. Either way, I, I, I believe there's hope for those of us who find themselves in this third soil. And so the realist addresses three groups, three main concerns that hinder our fruitfulness. And the first one are the cares of the world. I, I mean, I mean, I don't have enough pages to, to, to define what all the cares of the world are. We all know what the cares of the world are. We all know what the cares that weigh us down and that burden us that we could list out pretty succinctly and pretty quickly. And they are many. But the cares of the world here, Jesus is saying it's that anxious, unrelaxing attention to the business of this present life. Maybe it's a marriage that is teetering wayward children, sick children, dead children, a sick spouse, a dying spouse, financial pressures, professional pressures. Maybe you're overworked or you're underworked or you just have no work. Wars and rumors of wars. Rogue sexual desires and inclinations just knocking on your heart daily and the culture is doing you no favors. There's the uncertainty of the future. There's shame over the past. There's discontent about the present. There's a global pandemic. And how are we responding to that? You know, I, if I examine my own heart, if I examine my own life, I know what it feels like to succumb and to just think like, man, I'm in the deep end of the pool and I forgot how to swim. That's just how it feels. I can understand that. And I think Jesus understands that. We, 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 get, we get blindsided with something we didn't expect. Pretty soon it starts growing in our hearts and in our minds. Pretty soon it begins to dominate our thoughts. It dominates our affections. And all of a sudden Jesus starts shrinking. The word of God starts becoming minimized in our hearts. And we're just looking for a way out. I need more money. I need a better spouse. I... I need a better job. I need a better church. Out. I just need out. I just need out. But Jesus loves us too much to just do that. And normally he doesn't do that. It's because it's in those moments that he is working perhaps most tangibly in our lives. And we can read the Beatitudes, right? Where Jesus says, don't be anxious. Look, Consider the, the sparrows. Consider the birds. Consider... Um, 
the lilies. And we know that passage, but if we're honest, we struggle to really know it. It sounds great on paper, but in practice, when the waves of life start hitting you, it's, it, 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 it's difficult to have that resonate in your heart to the point where it starts defining your situation. It's difficult. It's a fight. Tim and Kathy Keller, some of you may know them. Uh, he's retired now, but he pastored a church in New York for well over 30 years. And he uses a metaphor for what could be applied to the cares of life. And it's, it's a little amusing, but he uses a soda machine. And he says that there are a lot of Christians that fit the metaphor of a soda machine. The coins have gone in, meaning the Holy Spirit is in you, but the coins are stuck. They haven't dropped, and as a result, the soda hasn't come out. And you're pounding away, trying to get that soda, but the coins are just stuck. And his wife, Kathy Keller, she said it. It's a bit of an audacious statement, but she says that 90% of Christians she knows are in this stage. She says that she, that she sees so many Christians that are just as afraid, just as anxious, just as insecure, just as impatient as the unbelievers around us. And their point is, is because you got to pound that gospel in until finally it drops. And when it drops, all of a sudden, those things that seem like Mount Everest's around you become more like hills that you can walk over by the grace of God. But you got to pound it. We're hard-hearted. We're stubborn. I have a dear friend that I've known for 25 years now. We played tennis in college. He was one of the first friends I had who was a Protestant. I came out of the Catholic background. Um, praying out loud was odd to me. I had a lot to learn. And so he was a friend of mine. Uh, I speak to him to this day. He's a pastor up in Portland, Oregon. And as I thought of somebody who has Christ front and center when the most difficult situations arise, I thought of him. Twelve years ago, his son developed a heart condition and after months of doctors trying to heal him, it failed and he died. Two years ago, he had a daughter named Ruth who developed the same heart condition. After months of trying to heal her, she died. And I know this guy. So when he writes or he says something, I've got 25 years to go based on. I, I know what he's like in the good times and the bad times. And this is what he wrote when his daughter died two years ago now. We are sad yet thankful for knowing Jesus Christ and to be a part of the Father's family. Ruth's journey on this planet came to an end this morning and she is in his hands now. We have sensed his spirit his peace, his grace, and your prayers. We are deeply thankful to all of you. All praise and honor and glory to our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 17 February 2018. And I just exchanged a few messages with him within the last two weeks. 
He, he lives it. He lives it. And how do you live that? You're not going to live it apart from the vine. It's impossible. I have heard of stories where somebody in this situation, it would destroy the marriage. It would shipwreck a person's faith. And yet, it done neither of those for this dear friend of mine. And the same can be true for us. And it's a simple statement, right? But it's not so simply lived. If we can trust Jesus with our eternity, we can trust Jesus with our today. So that's the cares of the world that Jesus starts teaching his disciples. And now Jesus moves on to the second symptom that chokes our fruitfulness. And it's the deceitfulness of riches. Now, money in and of itself is neutral. I don't believe that you can peg it as evil. Some people perhaps will go so far as to say that money is just evil. Capitalism is evil. Let's just surrender to a proletariat-type society where we'll allow a few special people determine what we need and how much we need of it. I don't ascribe to that. But it's neutral. Poor people can be coveters and greedy. Poor people can be among the most selfish. And rich people can be among the most liberal givers, among the most gracious and generous people that you meet. If anything, money just reveals a person's heart. It doesn't address it. And so if you're a coveter with a little bit of money, chances are you'll be a coveter with a lot of money and vice versa. I remember being in Germany, and we were sitting in church. <laughs> so we're in Germany, mind you. And uh, this guy walks in. The suit, not impressive. The statue, not impressive, to be honest. But he starts giving out cards to people in the uh, foyer. And I'm like, who is that guy? And he's like, that's Dan Cathy. And then I discovered that's Dan Cathy, the owner of Chick-fil-A. Apparently, they're trying to go global, and they were looking at cities where they might expand the kingdom of Chick-fil-A. And Frankfurt was one of the cities, and so they took over a hamburger restaurant on a Saturday night and then transformed into a Chick-fil-A and wanted to see what the response would be. But it was Sunday, and Dan Cathy wanted to go to church. So here rolls up this little taxi with like four people, you know, he's got his entourage, and they just wanted to worship with God's people. And he's giving away these $5, you know, gift cards to everybody. And I shake hands with him. And then I look him up on Wikipedia. He's worth $5 billion. So I can say I've shook hand with a billionaire. Might be the first and the last. I also have a friend who's a faithful pastor. Was getting paid 50% uh, by his church. And so the church kind of said, listen, you're going to try to have to find a way to muster up the rest of the income because we can only afford this much so he said no problem and he considered delivering pizzas and this and that and he ended up having this concept this niche idea and if i shared the details with you it would be staggering what has happened and needless to say he's not dependent on the church anymore so he just ministers and at the same time he's advancing god's kingdom but you know billy graham said this the late Billy Graham, the faithful Billy Graham, a checkbook is a theological document. 
It tells you who and what you worship. And so today checkbooks are less common, but in all honesty, if we want to get a good sense of where we're at spiritually, go to your website, pull up the last three months of statements, and just look where your money's going. Just look. And then check the percentages. Is it, is, is, it, is it for the advancement of the kingdom? Is it for the blessing of the world around me? Or is it something, something more closer to the vest? I mean, it's powerful. Money can seduce you. If, I, if I'm honest, there's been more than one morning where I wake up and I think of this pastor friend of mine, and I think to myself, what's my niche idea? What can I come up so that I could, you know, um, kind of have the same type of an income uh, that he's developed? It's powerful and it's seductive. And Jesus speaks to that. Jesus spoke more about money than anyone in the Bible. And in Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. Notice how he frames money. He frames it as a master. He doesn't frame it as a, as a currency. He frames it as a master. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't love two masters. And what are they? You cannot serve God and money. You got to pick. You got to pick. Because in your heart, there is only room for one God. There is only room for one master. And money is very seductive. Very appealing. Very powerful. I remember playing in a softball league, shoot, over 20 years ago as well. And uh, we were getting onto the field and, and somebody said, well, money can't buy happiness. And he's like, well, that may be right, but you can sure rent the heck out of it. But he said it in much more vulgar terms. But there is that idea, right? You, just give it to me. I, I, I think if I just have enough of it, I can really be happy. I can really be content. But Jesus doesn't have that vantage point, right? And not only does he have all currency and all monetary forms under his belt, he's got over 100 billion galaxies under his belt. So, right? So we listen to what Jesus says about money. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, the whole world, but forfeit your soul? What can a man give in return for your soul? And then Paul urges us in 1 Timothy to be content with what you have. Just be content with what you have. There's great godliness and contentment. And that, you know, many have made a shipwreck of their faith by pursuing riches and making that the focus of their life. And you think of Judas, right? We learned that Judas not only got 30 silver coins when he betrayed Jesus, but that Judas would also help himself to that bag of money that was committed to the servants or to the ministry that Jesus had in giving to the poor. Judas would help himself. Money had a grip on him. And ultimately, we know how things ended for Judas. And you think of the rich young ruler. Jesus was a realist with him. He like hit him right dead center bullseye of where he needed to go because money was the rich young ruler's God. And what did we learn? 
the rich young ruler left sad, saddened, because he could not give up his God in order to follow the true God. So what's the remedy? Well, even before we get to the remedy, this was interesting because we can point to outside the church, but inside the church, there's an interesting dynamic, I believe, too. You may have had these conversations. I've had them on multiple occasions where people will, for example, talk about tithing and giving and how that should look and, and, and how much should go and you know, are you supposed to tithe on the gross or on the net? I've heard that one more than once. And I think there was a time where I legitimately asked that question myself. Is it, is it a full 10% to the local church and then additional funds elsewhere? Or can you break up the 10% to the local church and then a portion elsewhere? But as I researched this, I couldn't help but to ask, is that even the real question? Is that even the real issue? And multiple places give you these statistics. Currently, Christians are giving 2.5% of their income to the church in the advancement of the kingdom. 2.5%. During the Great Depression, the church was giving 3.3%. And multiple websites say this as well. Only 3 to 5% of Americans tithe. 3 to 5% of Americans tithe. Go ahead, do it on the net. But only 3 to 5% do it. That means about 2 out of every 50 families and churches across America give 10% of their income to the local church or the advancement of the kingdom. I think there's a reason why Martin Luther said this. There are three conversions necessary in the life of a believer. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. And if we're honest, it's our wallet that is usually the last to be converted. But Jesus, again, speaks to that because he knows us. How good is it to have a God who knows you better than yourself and isn't shocked by it? You know, the Lord of our shame we sung this morning. If you took the most shameful element of your life and brought it before him, he'd say, I know. That's old news. You took the darkest area of your heart, you took the most deep struggles that you have and you laid it bare before Jesus. He would say, I, I knew that before you were even created. I had already shaped you and formed you. I had already um, determined how I would save you, how I would bring you into my kingdom. I know. I know. Isn't my grace bigger? Aren't my mercies new every morning? But Jesus says in Matthew 6, right? Don't store up your treasures here on earth. Something's going to get it. Rust is going to get it. A thief is going to get it. But lay it up in heaven. Lay it up for the advancement of the kingdom. Put his financial interests first. Where neither moth, neither moth nor rust nor thieves break in and steal. And why does he say that? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus would say, give and give and give. 
Give of your money, give of your time, give of your gifts, give liberally. And Paul in Acts 20 verse 35 says, and remember when the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But it's hard to grasp that. It's hard to trust that. There is a level of security that comes upon us when your checking account is on a high point. There is an insecurity in our hearts when our checking point starts dipping to that minimum and we start looking at our savings and we start realizing, I don't know if there's enough to get us through this month. It just is. It's hard to believe that the God who formed us and shaped us and provides for us is the one who's going to get these bills taken care of, even if I tithe, even if I support a ministry that God has called me to. Jim Elliott said, the tithe is not a ceiling for giving, but a starting point for gratitude. A starting point for gratitude. Which, if you remember at the beginning of the sermon, right, it seems to me like this whole thing could be distilled in worship. Right? Our fruitlessness or our fruitfulness, it's a product, it's an equation that lends itself to what we are worshiping, what we are trusting in. And think about Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus got saved, it overwhelmed him with joy. Money became so inconsequential that he didn't just want to get right with the people he robbed and defrauded. He said, fourfold, just give it to them. Give it to them. Anybody, anybody, come. Fourfold, I return the money that I took from you. And what was Jesus' response to this act by Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, today salvation has come upon this home. Because generosity is li lines in with proper worship and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. Another reason to be generous is this. We are extremely wealthy. We, we just are. If you're married with three kids and you make $50,000 a year, you are in the top 14% of the richest people on the planet. 86% of the world is less rich than you are. Upwards of what? 5.76 billion people are less wealthy than you are. If you earn $150,000 a year, you are in the top 2% of the wealthiest people on the planet. And if you earn $200,000 a year or more, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people on the planet. That is staggering. It's a broad 1%, but you are in the same percent with Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Kanye West, Jay-Z. And what's funny is, we grumble. We grumble at this. Again, I, I get that. I get that feel, that tug on your heart. We do. We grumble. Unexpected bills, unexpected um, situations, and that now require you to reprioritize your whole financial situation. But think about it. 99% of the world is poorer than you. Seven point something billion people on this planet have less than you. If you were in a class and somebody gave you back your paper and said you scored 
you would not be grumbling because you didn't get 100%. You'd be so stoked and so excited that you got an A+. But yet, we live in a culture of affluenza. We live in a culture that tells us it's never enough. You need more. So Jesus is aware of how seduced, how deceptive riches can be. But the great theologian Jim Carrey said this once. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And if you know a little bit about him, life, his life, there's a reason why he says that. You can literally have it all, and maybe that might be one of the most disappointing moments in your life when you finally got everything you thought you ever wanted only to get it and realize it has left you feeling empty and broke. But Jesus goes on now to the third and final warning or impediment to our fruitfulness. And he says it's the desire for other things. It, it's, it's the lust. It's the, it's, it's the desire for those pleasures of life that, 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 that tantalize us as we consider the world and all that it offers. One commentator put it this way. These desires choke or smother the word, drawing off so much of one's attention, absorbing so much of one's interest, and using up so much of one's time that only the dregs of these remain for spiritual things. And a ragged, hurried, and heartless formalism is at length all the religion of such persons. You're so sucked dry by the things you have put a premium on that at the end of the day, you're left with peanuts for the things of the kingdom. It can be a career. It could be a hobby. It could be a relationship. Fill in the gap. But it can suck us dry. And Jesus is warning us as the ultimate realist. He's warning us against this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says this, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. So attractive, so shiny, the bells, the whistles, the lights, it can so overwhelm your senses and your heart that the things of the Lord just become trivial. And it's part of our DNA. It's something that we have to be mindful of. So Jesus tells us again in the Beatitudes, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is making the promise, you take care of my interests first, you put my interests where they belong at the top of your list, I'll give you everything else. I, 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 will, I will bless you in ways that you cannot account for. You take care of my father's business I'll take care of your business. Believe me. Some people might say that, you know, so-and-so is too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. And I can see that point. I can see how that can apply to certain people. But C.S. Lewis makes a great counter-argument when it comes to 
putting first things first and seeking God's kingdom above all else. He says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christianity, it since, excuse me, it's, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. And then here's a quote that you guys may have heard before, but he ends it like this. Aim at heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So Jesus is saying, you can trust me. If you can trust me with your eternity, you can trust me with your today. Paul tells us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus says, I have gone to prepare a place for you. Some translations say, I have gone to prepare a mansion for you. Jim Elliot, again, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And I just want to look at one passage as we close. But um, I, I have spent many a times just meditating on this psalm. If you would, turn to Psalm 103. Because all of this that we've talked about today boils down to worship. And it boils down to who has our allegiance. It boils down to who do we believe has our best interests in mind. And if we're honest, we struggle at times to believe in the goodness of God. We struggle at times to believe that God has our best interests in mind. We struggle to believe that the things that we read apply to us individually. That it's not for the church out there, but it's for each and every one of us in the chairs here. And as people have said, maybe these letters and these psalms were not written to us, but they were definitely written for us because we are a product of God's grace as he builds and advances his church and his kingdom on this planet. But consider Psalm 103. I'll try not to read it verbatim. But here's David. David had a lot of ups and downs. But he's pleading with himself. He's praying that he would bless the Lord. And why? Why would he bless the Lord? Because he doesn't want to forget all the benefits of God. You know, when you get a job, they'll tell you, here are the benefits that you will receive when you come on board with Company X. When you join this um, gym, when you join this timeshare, when you join this country club, here are the benefits that you're going to get the moment you sign up and pay your dues. Well, David is saying, I just want to remember. I just want to remember the benefits that I already have as a child of God. I don't want to forget what I already have. Satan wants you to forget 
Satan wants, doesn't want you to meditate on this. He does want to convince you like, oh yeah, maybe God is holding out. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe it doesn't apply to you. Maybe you've messed up so bad in your life, you are beyond. You're, you're a second class Christian. Maybe you're going to heaven, but you're living out in Temecula instead of La Jolla. That's not how Jesus treats us though. And in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. And think of this image. Think of standing before God and he is crowning you as his son or his daughter with steadfast love and mercy. In Hebrew, that steadfast love is hesed. It is an unending, it is an uncompromising, unshakable, unquenchable love that he pours out on his people because they're so good at living the Christian life? No. It's because that's what he chooses to do. You can't as much lose this love as much as you can gain it to start with. And if you think you can, then you're struggling to understand your salvation. And then verse 5, we worship a God who satisfies you with good. In Zephaniah 3.17, God says, he will, still, he will satisfy your heart. He will still your heart. He will quiet your heart with his love. He will satisfy your deepest longings as you turn to him. That your youth is renewed like the eagles. Isaiah 40. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Merciful. He pours out his long-suffering, his compassion, his empathy when you're stuck, when you're knocked down. And he's gracious. His grace is always greater than our sin. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Again, the hesed. He will not always chide. Because we are his children, we do know this. He does discipline us. Hebrews tells us that. It, it hurts. <laughs> it's painful. But when you endure and you are trained by it, you yield the peaceful root, uh, uh, fruit of righteousness. He prunes us. He will not always chide us. Nor does he keep his anger forever. And in verse 10, there it is. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin. <laughs> okay, you were a jerk to your spouse. You blew up at your kids. You fudged your taxes. You cheated your employer. I'm, I'm pouring out my grace on you. I'm, I'm pouring out my mercy on you. The Holy Spirit will convict you. The Holy Spirit will guide you in what to do. But we are not treated according to our sins. This isn't a tit-for-tat relationship that we have with the Father. It's not meeting us halfway. You don't meet a dead person halfway. And you don't meet a child halfway. Our sins are taken so far apart from us in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, you can't measure it. You can't measure how far God takes his sin away from us. And you go on and on and on. And if you want your application or your implication or your whatever you want to call it, it would be this. Believe this. Because yeah, we're called to run the race of faith. Yeah, we're called to fight. Yeah, we're called to mortify sin. That's not disputable. But what's the fuel that's driving us? Is it because I'm fearful that God is going to come down hard on me or deprive me of something? 
Or is it because I know that his hesed love and mercy flows and enamors and, and drowns me? And it's always there. And when he looks at me, he can't help but to smile because every time he looks at me, he has to look through Jesus. That's in essence what we're saying as Christians. We're saying, God, I can't, I have no chance on my own. But somehow in this divine mystery, God loves his son, always listens to his son. And Jesus advocates on our behalf. He stands in our place. And we've got full rights and privileges as a son and daughter of the Most High. And last quote, and I'm done. I recently finished a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And basically he took uh, some of the Puritans like Thomas Goodwin and really focused on the heart of God, the love of God, and put it in modern language, drew out some um, uh, implications for the modern life, the modern Christian. And I think Dane Ortland understands the human heart as the Puritans did, because he basically just pillaged the Puritans in writing this book and slaps his name on it. But like one seminary pro professor told me, if you steal from one writer, you, um, what's that called? What's that word called? You, when you plagiarize. But if you steal from many writers, it's good research. <laughs> right? And that's what he did. And he says this, the Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And he goes on to say, Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. And so if you apply that, to the passage we looked at. Fruitfulness and fruitlessness is tied to worship. And so not only is it that we have a worshipful heart, not only is it that we consider the benefits of being sons and daughters of God, but that we have a right view of God. And that, the Puritan says, takes time. And you got to pound the soda machine, pound the soda machine, pound the soda machine, until lo and behold, that soda drops out. And what you've known here and where the coins were stuck somewhere in your throat are now in your heart. And that peaceful fruit of righteousness now begins to mark your life. And so when the cares of life become a, a, a storm, a hurricane threatening to destroy, your response is more of a calm, subdued, reliance, knowing that God has been faithful in the past, He'll be faithful in the present, He'll be faithful in the future. And when you get wealthy, you can hold it with an open, more open hand. And when the wind blows and that money vanishes, 
you can thank God and be less inclined to get crushed by the reversal of your fortunes. And when you partake in your hobby, in your career, in your interests, and they go well, you can again hold them with an open hand. And should God take them away, you can rejoice because you can honestly know that it was in God's best interest and in my um, best happiness that he took it away. Because he loves us with a perfect love. He loves us as a perfect father. And we have been made sons and daughters called to worship him and to advance his kingdom here on earth. Let's pray. Father, um, easy to preach, much harder to live. That is where your Holy Spirit uh, must work. And Father, I pray that for all of us this morning, for those who find themselves laid out, discouraged, defeated, that you would uh, engage them today, Lord, that you would give them fresh hope, fresh encouragement, that you would tangibly pour out your mercies and kindness upon them. And Father, for those who are doing well, for those who are in a season of strong faith, feeling strong closeness to you, I pray, God, that they can hold all the things of this world loosely, knowing that you are the pearl of great price. You are the treasure that's unparalleled. You are our true shepherd, our true friend, and our true reward. In Jesus' name, amen.